Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is November 18, 2023, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honor to welcome in discussion members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. Today, we're revisiting, again, the third part of Plato's dialogue, the Timaeus, covering from 53a to 72d, which two weeks ago, we ran out of time for an in-depth discussion. These are the sections in which the astronomer Timaeus explains the geometry of triangles and the five platonic solids. Timaeus says this knowledge is necessary for understanding our sensory perceptions of physics as the limits of physical objects come to be and pass away over time in the realm of becoming. So geometry and the related mathematics can be challenging to philosophers who haven't had much exposure to them. With the hope of making it easier to understand the words of Timaeus, on the second page of the notes for today's discussion, which I have up here on the screen, I've added two diagrams of triangles. One shows proportions of trigonometry, and the other illustrates the different varieties of triangles. These notes are posted on the shared drive link to the event notice on meetup.com. So as always, to contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. And for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. So that everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. Once we finish recording in two hours, I invite anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. Two weeks ago, we discussed some key aspects in the configuration of the universe's physical realm, as Timaeus describes them. Specifically, one, that becoming requires a container which is neutral to physical limits. Two, that space is neutral and provides, quote, a fixed state for all things that come to be, unquote. And three, that as imitations of the eternal come to be and pass away in time, they give rise to probability. Timaeus contrasted reason to necessity and two participants equated the word necessity to physical limits that are always subject to universal conservation laws, but which are logically ordered by our faculty of reason operating without limit in the realm of being. We also touched on how Plato's words present, in a different formulation, some of the universal laws that we now understand as laws of motion and conservation. So today we'll consider how geometry allows our physical senses to distinguish sameness from difference among the shapes of physical objects data of which the senses deliver to our faculty of reason. As we heard two weeks ago, reason operates by our measurement of shape, which, in the Mino, Socrates called the limit of a solid. So recall that at the outset, Timaeus described the universe as spherical, at the center of which he placed the immaterial soul, which revolves around itself in its exercise of reason. The sphere, Timaeus said, is the shape that can contain all the shapes that exist, and is therefore suited to a single universe. In today's reading, at 62d, Timaeus relates a piece of geometric logic that nothing solid can exist at the center of a sphere if motion of solids is also to exist within the sphere. So now, imagining our non-physical souls rotating with self-reflection in the middle of a sphere and surrounded by physical objects, I'm hoping that today we can address two fundamentally philosophical questions. The first of these was the subject of some disagreement two weeks ago. So one, is it possible for intelligence to have emerged after the creation of the physical universe? And if it did, then how could intelligence logically gauge the limits of the physical objects that came before it? And two, how does the observer distinguish the limits of the observed 
And does observation depend on proportions among the same, the different, and the equal? So before we start, I'll say that this will be our last session on Plato's Timaeus this season. By not reviewing the ending of the dialogue, I'm invoking a precedent that Timaeus uses numerous times throughout to say that it's a matter for discussion at another time. The ending explains the creation of the body, the logic of which follows from the geometry of the intelligible universe that we will discuss today. So in our next session, we'll revisit the short dialogue, The Critias, named after the character who appears at the beginning of the Timaeus, describing the legend of Atlantis, which we'll hear more of in two weeks. So in this note, let me begin today's discussion by reviewing the logic of time that Timaeus presents from 37b to 38c, which we can then relate to his description of triangles that starts at 53b. And so this I read, uh, this is on the cover page of today's notes, and I read this a few weeks ago, and I'll reread it again here just to just to kind of position ourselves for understanding of you know some of the geometry of triangles that he's talking about here. And triangles came up a lot in our last meeting, so I thought it'd be uh, useful to kind of frame our discussion today with this. So this is from 37D to 38C. Timaeus says, now it was a living thing's nature to be eternal. And here there's capital L, capital T, and he's describing the universe. So the universe he's saying is a living thing, capital L, capital T. Now it was a living thing's nature to be eternal, but it isn't possible to bestow eternity fully upon anything that is begotten. So he began to think of making a moving image of eternity. At the same time as he brought order to the universe, he would make an eternal image moving according to number of eternity remaining in unity. This number, of course, is what we now call time. For before the heavens came to be, there were no days or nights, no months or years. But now, at the same time as he framed the heavens, he devised their coming to be. These are all parts of time, and was and will be are forms of time that have come to be. Such notions we unthinkingly but incorrectly apply to everlasting being. For we say that it was and will be, but according to the true account, only is is appropriately said of it was and will be are properly said about the becoming that passes in time, for these two are motions. But that which is always changeless and motionless cannot become either older or younger in the course of time. It neither ever became so, nor is it now such that it has become so, nor will it ever become so in the future. And all in all, none of the characteristics that becoming has bestowed upon the things that are born about in the realm of perception are appropriate to it. These, rather, are forms of time that have come to be, time that imitates eternity and circles according to number. And what is more, we also say things like these, that what has come to be is what has come to be, that what is coming to be is what is coming to be, and also that what will come to be is what will come to be, and that what is not is what is not. None of these expressions of ours is accurate, but I don't suppose this is a good time right now to be too meticulous about these matters. Time then came to be together with the universe, so that just as they were begotten together, they might also be undone together, should there ever be an undoing of them. So I wanted to start with that, just to remind us of that very fascinating depiction of time and the interesting reference there, where Timaeus says, this number, of course, is what we now call time. And, you know, the words, of course, there, uh, maybe he's being a little tongue in cheek, because I'm not sure that's our natural understanding of time. I don't think that everybody, anybody would say this is necessarily, of course, our understanding of time. So that was what he said about time. Uh, and that was in our earlier session on the Timaeus. And now I'm just flipping to the diagrams of triangles that I have here on the screen. 
The first is a triangle that's divided into trigonometric proportions, showing the cosine, sine, cotangent, tangent, secant, and cosecant. Um, and uh, of course, the three parts of the, the triangle, the, the two legs and the hypotenuse. So it's interesting here, we should know that the hypotenuse is the longest part of the triangle and the, the legs are the shorter parts. Um, and that may have some relationship to uh, the lesser and the greater that Plato keeps referring to in so many of his dialogues. So the greater would be the hypotenuse perhaps, and the lesser would be the two sides. And I think we all know the Pythagorean theorem that uh, the sum of the squares of the two sides equals the square of the hypotenuse. So I wanted to read this section from today's selection. This is Timaeus 53b. And this refers to physics. When he says bodily form, he's talking about physics here. So he says, now everything that has bodily form also has depth. Depth, moreover, is of necessity comprehended within surface. And any surface bounded by straight lines is composed of triangles. Every triangle, moreover, derives from two triangles, each of which has one right angle and two acute angles. Of these two triangles, one has at each of the other two vertices an equal part of a right triangle, determined by its division by equal sides, while the other has unequal parts of a right triangle at its other two vertices, determined by the division of the right angle. And I just wanted to stop there um, because there's a number of concepts that you know I brought up in, in this bit that I've read and what I said about the lesser and the greater with respect to triangles. And I wanted to see if there's any reaction to that part that I just read from Timaeus 53b, starting with the contention that everything has bodily form also has depth, which I think is there he's talking about three dimensions. So a triangle is in two dimensions, but then when it's projected with depth, it could be the basis of a physical thing that has bodily form. And then there's the statement that he makes that any surface bounded by straight lines is composed of triangles. And that one I'm wondering might be a little bit contentious given our discussion two weeks ago, but I'm reading that as meaning that anything physical has to have a boundary. And you can't have a boundary with just two lines. You need three lines to form a boundary, to enclose something, to enclose something with a shape. And all things physical, uh, he said, as we heard two weeks ago, have shape. So is there any reaction to this statement that any surface bounded by straight lines is composed of triangles? Is there any dispute to that? Klim, your thoughts. Uh, hi, uh, everyone. Uh, no, I, I actually, I don't have any dispute. I think the, the way I understand it, uh, being bound by a straight line, I may be interpreted, interpreting it in a wrong way, but to me, he's talking about like a very Euclidean type of geometry where the surface, the plane that he's talking is not a curved plane. So in other words, you can draw uh, the, the plane that the straight line lies on the plane. So it it's not a curved like it's not a, a, a an Einstein type of plane, right? So it's a basic Euclidean geometry, which I, you know, I think is always always true. No need to overcomplicate it. So there's there's absolutely no objection to him being a geometer uh, in in that sense. Um, yeah, I'll I'll stop here. 
Yeah, I think you've introduced the idea of different types of geometry. We talk about Euclidean geometry, which is two-dimensional, and then we get into higher dimensions of geometry, which is what Einstein was dealing with when he formulated special relativity in 1905 and general relativity in 1915. So so thanks for that. We can talk about those differences in geometries. Um, so Roger, your thoughts? Yes, I, I concur with Clem. I think uh, he's talking about the plane, uh, plane surface, and uh, that surface has a discrete number of segments. It's not a continuous boundary. So you can think of a, an octagon or a polygon uh, in general, like a, a triangle, uh, sorry, a rectangle. Or, uh, so these, these surfaces are areas or, or plane surfaces with, with straight segments on the boundaries. Yeah, sure, uh, can be construed or can be looked at as uh, comprising a certain number of uh, triangles uh, inside. Yeah, but if we think, for instance, of a surface that's bounded by curved boundaries, then that's a different story. Like, for instance, a circle. Uh, you're not going to be able to look at the circle as comprising a, a number of triangles. You cannot do that. But with straight segments at the boundaries, yeah, I think I think I I see it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, I guess well, one thing I would raise here is that. I guess we know that there's no perfect circle in physical existence. That the, the perfect circle, I guess, is a is an abstract notion. Uh, and so maybe uh, maybe what we call physical circles are really composed of straight lines. But those straight lines form the chords of what would be a circle. But that that circle is always imperfect. I would just raise that potential in there, um, and um, that. It, the point just escaped me, but anyway, I'll just I'll leave it at that, and uh, we'll go back to Clem. Um, and and also on the triangles, to me, uh, the, the way he introduces them as you know, as every, everything on the plane being uh, made by triangles, uh, it's actually a very very true statement as well, because I would view triangles as the the basic building block in that sense, because what's the minimum shape that we need? I think we touched on that in, in prior discussions as well, uh, because you can construct pretty much any shape, I would say, including a circle and anything that has a curve on, on the plane, within the plane, using triangles, then you'd have to introduce other mathematical concepts to that, like the, the calculus, for example. But basically, it's, it's, it's a measuring technique. You know, tri triangle is your basic shape and basic measuring tool or technique or method that we you know human beings being rational beings can use and i think it's the, the sense that i'm getting from euclidean geometry is you know what's the minimum effort that we need to expend to to achieve to arrive to a certain goal a certain conclusion so it's like an energy saving exercise that <laughs> uh really and i kind of i expanded on that last time where I cited the uh, Descartes system of coordinates and basically all our calculus is deriving from there and it's all in essence it's a triangle and the relationships within the triangle so you have all our modern mathematics condensed uh, or you could say that you can unpack the theory of triangles unpack sort of like a 
software product <laughs> uh, into the whole theory, into a whole developed complex theory um, in mathematical field. So I'll stop there. That's really helpful, actually, that perspective that you offered about the triangles uh, offer the basic measuring technique or the basis for measurement and the minimum effort. I, I really thought that was interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. But when we measure things, I think this is really the, the core of this part of the dialogue is that it's about our sensory measurement of physical things. So Timaeus has set up this universe in two different realms. One is the realm of becoming, where everything physical exists. Everything is always in a constant state of motion and in a constant state of change. And that part that I read about the nature of time, he makes the point that nothing ever is in the realm of becoming. Everything is always in this constant state of change. And so our physical perceptions are measuring those changes. I think that's really the core of what he's saying in this part of the dialogue. Uh, is about measurement. And and as you said, I really like the way you said that about the triangle kind of being the minimum basis of measurement. And I, I think we're going to see that. I, I want to read the next part closer to the end of today's reading just after this, which may put that in further perspective. So I wanted to thank you for that. Uh, the other point I wanted to make, actually, just the point I was trying to remember before is that a triangle can enclose a circle or part of a circle. And that, in fact, is what's demonstrated in this drawing here at the top of the page where the triangle, it's a right angle triangle, but it contains part of a circular arc. And so maybe we can consider both circles and straight lines in our understanding of perception if, if we embed the circle within the triangle. So that's the, that's the other point I wanted to make. So, so thanks again. And uh, Roger. Just a quick follow-up on what uh, has been said so far. It kind of strikes me like 2,000 years later that we are still using this fundamental concept of subdividing uh, an area into triangles. When we think of, uh, well, Klim mentioned software, when we think of finite elements, for instance, the uh, one of the most common way of uh, meshing or discretizing a surface into a set of discrete elements is to use triangular elements. That's one of the most effective way. <laughs> I mean, coming back to the issue of uh, minimizing energy and so on, but that's the most effective way really and the most commonly used way of discretizing a, um, a two-dimensional surface or even a three-dimensional volume into um, triangular uh, elements. Well, and, and well, what I'm alluding to is for instance, if you want to carry out a calculation over a certain area, for instance, if you want to find the distribution of forces as you're bending a certain piece of metal, so do you, you, you do discretize it first and you, you apply the conservation laws and then you come up with the answer. But the geometrical meshing is basically done with triangular elements, but now they use, of course, rectangular and other kind of... Uh, coordinate systems that whatever whatever is convenient but the, the triangular discretization is the most common one and that's really helpful i didn't know that and and when you say discretization are you talking about breaking things up into parts is, is that essentially what that means yes is to represent a a continuous uh, part of the plane or that that area we're talking about to subdivide it into smaller elements and what you do in usually when you develop those codes and the software, 
like if we talk about finite element, then you take the complicated equations that govern, let's say, the forces and the displacement or the temperature or the velocity, whatever you're calculating, you take those difficult equations and then you simplify them over each of these elements. So you, you implement a very crude solution to those equations over each element. And the smaller those elements are, the more accurate your uh, your final answer is going to be. So you go from element to the next and you connect, of course, and then uh, finally all the way to the boundaries. And that's where you need the computational power is the more elements you have, millions of elements sometimes you, you, you need. And uh, you can imagine, I mean, even 40 years ago, it was very difficult to carry out those uh, calculations that now you can carry out on a simple laptop. But yes, discretization is to subdivide an area into a discrete number of elements. Yeah, and that's, I really appreciate the context there. That's really helps to understand the importance of this uh, in the modern context, 2,400 years after Plato wrote this particular dialogue, uh, but also a long time after Pythagoras uh, or the Pythagoreans came up with the famous theorem, which I think in the absence of the Pythagorean theorem, I don't think that Newton or Einstein or anybody else would have, you know, did what they did to wind up with what we now use as general relativity. So I think that's that's pretty critical. So that that's really a helpful perspective on the the importance of triangles. Uh, Clem. Yes, also an, another small comment on where I see geometry comes in as, as being almost a metaphysical tool or set of tools for Plato to, you know, to actually to talk about metaphysics. Because to me, the principles of geometry, and it's not just my feeling, I think it's supported by what I cited previously as a perennial philosophy, which stems all the way from Plato, Neoplatonics, uh, Scholastics, and to, to modern times, where they, they operate by very highly abstracts, which they call principles, which really have very, very much uh, in common with the principles of Euclidean geometry. And you mentioned, James, uh, previously that there's this concept of being bound by something and, and boundaries and, and limitations. That's, I think, when metaphysicians of the, the perennial philosophy kind uh, talk about boundaries or they call them also sometimes conditions, something that you know conditions our existence, uh, in metaphysical terms, they do draw analogies from geometry or from Platonic geometry as well, because the, these are very highly basic notions that are as metaphysical as they are common sense and practical. So that's one point. So there's, I think it's like really a bridge between the pure metaphysics and a discipline like, uh, you know, basic math or um, basic Euclidean geometry. And that's in, in itself, I think it's fascinating. And the area that is, there's not a, a whole, a lot of focus on it right now, but I believe it can, again, be uh, 
unzipped and and unpacked uh, if you start looking at this with with a very very high precision which i believe what kant tried to do at some point when he developed his you know thesis on which he i think started in maybe in uh, prolegomena and uh, the metaphysical foundations of natural sciences and just briefly of course i'm not i have not read the kant you know sufficiently enough but there are striking analogies in his way of thinking now everything for kant is kind of internalized so there are things out there things in themselves that for which we can you know make concepts and conclusions using our you know internal capacities logical capacities but for which we cannot say how they look like what they made of and and so on so there are things in like kind of closed uh, outside of reach by either our mind or our perceptions but, but we do get perceptions of the things outside and so Kant almost you know following on his maybe debate or some you know agreeing or disagreeing with Hume he develops this whole theory of which he calls metaphysics but he unlike Plato I think Kant is probably sort of like a secret Platonist also but then he has no option he feels like he has no option but to start internalizing what Plato calls metaphysics because for Plato it, it's both internal and external and he kind of which what is interesting about Plato is that he makes internal impressions he actually is very much resembles me the these first scientists uh, in in Europe who try to explain the world by mechanics uh, as, as Noam Chomsky says that there should be like a hand that moves a heavenly body so there should be a a bodily contact which then Newton came in and was very disappointed that it's not so there are some occult forces that actually move move the bodies and it's not mechanical but Plato is it's kind of interesting Plato being a metaphysician in when he explains inner senses such as touch and smell uh, color he almost like doesn't know of any other alternative other than a mechanical explanation so if, I, if I'm correct interpreting him uh, which I may or may not be his definition of let's say sense and touch and, and so on color sound is nothing but I, th I think in fact it's very straight strict definition of mechanical interactions of these uh, primary <laughs> shapes so a mechanical a certain type of a mechanical interaction in almost like in the in a scientific view of our of our uh, early European scientists is you know equal like you can put an equal sign there and say that that is the sense now how a certain type of sense is described nothing mm -hmm. else so it's kind of interesting that a, a metaphysician is in trying to explain our sense perception has to fall into the body you know the body like the realm of bodies and uh, how they interact due to their shapes uh, how they interact and, and how a certain sense is being formed. But kind of back to Kant, he's talking about the analytical versus synthetic, uh, a priori versus a posteriori. And those are concepts that are really in, inner, like inside a person's mind by which that person is trying to represent uh, inner things, uh, by inner things, the things that are outside and they're also strictly speaking like pure metaphysical things which are a priori and either analytic which is by definition or synthetic where the definition is not 
in the phrase, for example, in, in, in a statement. So it's not by definitional. And that's his discovery mm -hmm. um, where he basically goes back to the examples from geometry where he's saying, well, uh, a priori analytical a priori statement would be like a, a definition of triangle. It's a shape with three sides and three corners or three angles. But a synthetic definition of triangle would be that a triangle has, you know, the sum of angles would make up 180 degrees because it's not necessarily evident from the definition. You have to kind of, you know, put yourself on a, on a logical track to unpack that knowledge yeah. that is not the, uh, obvious uh, yeah. you know, for just just by looking at the definition yeah yeah that, that that's helpful actually it's um and, and sorry to interrupt there i just before we get too far into kant uh but i think what you just said about a priori and synthetic is very interesting and it takes us back i think maybe to the way time has described the the arrangement of the universe as as being a sphere because the sphere contains all the shapes that are and he put at the middle of the sphere a soul, which is immaterial, because he says, and we'll see this in today's reading, he says that if there were something solid at the middle of a sphere, the sphere could not contain any other motion. And that's the key thing. So he says there has to be something immaterial at the center of the soul. Maybe that's the kind of inner part that you were talking about in terms of uh, Kant and metaphysics. And I think that's pretty important that we keep this concept in mind. This is how Timaeus has said the universe is, that you know we live in this vast array of uh, physical objects, but at the very center of it is the soul of the universe itself. And we each have a share of that soul, which I think, as I've said before, is a very empowering idea. So I think that's that's helpful. And just you know to highlight that, I have this image of a sphere here on the screen. And to take it back to what Roger said before about measuring area and volume, we have here the, you know, the area, the surface area of a sphere being four pi r squared and the volume being four thirds pi r cubed. And so we have the ability to measure that, but the sphere itself, the perfect sphere doesn't exist. The perfect sphere, Timaeus would say, is the universe itself. So thanks for that. And we'll go to Darren. Uh, hi, everyone. Yeah, I appreciated uh, Clem's comment just now. And um, like he really emphasized how what we see here could be understood as a kind of metaphysics of natural science almost, because with the with these sort of elements, we can build up a mechanical view of nature. I think he is setting up the tools for us to do that, which is the thing that enables us to explain so much of the world. And Plato is saying you know, underneath at least one theory of the world at the time, you know, that the world, the fundamental elements are like water, fire, air, um, and earth. He's saying that actually, like, these aren't, we shouldn't even say is with these things, that they can transform into one another because they're actually just made up of triangles. And he has these, you know, he's going to talk about like the uh, octahedron and so on and all the other, you know, objects. So, but the thing I, I, I guess I want to add to that is that it's, it's not a purely... <laughs> um mechanical view of the world right so actually james just like stole my comment because um mm. he he brought the soul back to the picture and i guess the aspect i would add to that is that he talks about so he, he talks about two kinds of causes right like this is like emphasized throughout this dialogue so the, the sorts that's based on these triangles is 
the cause of what he calls necessity. And he also calls them auxiliary causes of various points. And he also even calls them secondary causes. But then there is the primary cause, um, which is the intellectual one, which is a thing that uses all these mechanical objects and laws and how they interact to build the universe we live in. And I, I think this is sort of like maybe like secret <laughs> unex unannounced project in the dialogue, but it's, you know, it's everywhere, which is that he's trying to re-describe things that re-describe a lot of phenomenon in these mechanical terms. So he's saying, like, for instance, we saw in previous readings, like he, he talks about how like people were scared of like celestial phenomena, like stars coming and disappearing. And he says there's actually literally nothing to be scared of. It's all numbers. <laughs> it's all just geometry and numbers. So he, yeah, he, I think I made a mistake about uh, in the previous dialogue, I another discussion, I mentioned how like he said people were superstitious about dreams and how he was saying, actually, no, there's nothing to be scared about because like he gives sort of this mechanical reason for why we dream. Um, but actually, so he does give a mechanical explanation for dreams, but what he mentioned regarding superstition was actually regarding our people's um, feeling, I think he says, terrors, importance of things to come regarding celestial phenomenon. So he, he tries to give us, um, I guess you could call it a geometric or numerical or mechanical explanation for those things. So there's nothing to be scared of. But the world that's created is still, but it's not purely mechanical because the, the craftsman that uses these tools to create the world that we do see um, so it's sort of like an interesting sort of mix of things, I guess, because the craftsman doesn't literally like bring things. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be in this story that the craftsman like literally creates the things. He just sort of organizes them and gives them certain proportions. Like there mm -hmm. sort of seems to be already a material object around. And then he just sort of, um, yeah, uses them to create the world we live in. And even like for instance, like I, I don't I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but like one of the the view of the universe that's created, like there's the souls, and he says that with the material he used to create the souls, he actually in that moment in in that process of creation, he assigned each soul to a star. This is part I really I kind of like the image being presented here. And he said that um like before replacing their bodies, he took like each soul on the tour of the whole universe. <laughs> and to see like and how like in this universe, like each soul has a kind of equality because each of a star and none of them would be treated worse than any other. So anyway, I'm just saying that. So there, there is sort of, a, there are very mechanical aspects of this dialogue. And then there's sort of these very, like, there's a lot of stuff that goes beyond it. Like, mm -hmm. like that story I was just describing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, that, and that's interesting the way that you reminded us of, you know, intelligence being the primary cause and the, the secondary or auxiliary cause, which was in the last part that we read, uh, was referred to as necessary, and it's interesting the way you equated that to the triangle. So, uh, and that could relate to what Roger said about the triangles being, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, the basis of measurement. And Clem said that too at the beginning. So, I mean, maybe one question here is one of those two questions that I asked at the beginning: is what came first, intelligence or the physical universe? Uh, and this was a basis of contention in our last meeting two weeks ago. And uh, I think Steve, you know, said the. Uh, related what I think is uh, fair, it's a common view, I think, is that the physical universe came first and intelligence emerged afterwards. And that, that's what he said in, in our last discussion. And I think that's 
that's kind of what you would think, I think, just from taking the empirical evidence that if you think that all knowledge comes from empirical evidence, then knowledge can't exist until the empirical evidence comes. And that would mean that the physical universe comes first. But uh, Timaeus here is saying something very different. He's saying that the intelligent universe comes first and then the physical universe developed. And what you were talking about in terms of uh, proportions. Just uh, just before I go back to Klim, I just wanted to read this short section here. This is close to the end of today's reading. This is 69b to 69c, and this is all about proportions. Proportions are, are necessary for measurement. And if we recall what Timaeus said earlier, that the universe is a mixture of the same and the different. And it was a very difficult mixture for the creator to accomplish this mixture of the same and the different, because every time you mix the same, things that are the same want to go together and things that are different want to go apart from the same. So how do you bind these all together? So there's that interesting reference to the shaking machine and, and all of that. So uh, this part maybe explains a little bit about this and the use of proportion um, as being essential to this mixture of the same and the other. So I'll just read this short bit here. Uh, so it says, to repeat what was said at the outset, the things we see were in a condition of disorderliness when the God introduced as much proportionality into them and in as many ways, making each thing proportional both to itself and to other things, as was possible for making them to be commensurable and proportionate. For at that time, they had no proportionality at all, except by chance, nor did any of them qualify at all for the names we now use to name them, names like fire, water, etc., all these things, rather, that God first gave order to, and then out of them he proceeded to construct this universe, a single living thing that contains within itself all living things, mortal and immortal. He himself fashioned those that were divine, but assigned to his own progeny the task of fashioning the generation of those that were immortal. So I just wanted to raise up this importance of proportionality in terms of this mixture of the same and the different in this universe, and, and the same and the different, Timaeus is saying, is that's our way of perceiving things. So we perceive differences. If something is the same, you, you can't perceive, what am I trying to say? You can't perceive the limits of the same. There has to be difference for you to be able to perceive limits. So in this realm of becoming, it's the realm of limits, and we perceive limits based on their differences. And the only way that you can get the universe to be same to itself, but contain these differences is by the use of proportion. And I think there's, I, I can see a lot of geometric and mathematical justification to this statement. So I just wanted to read that. So we'll go back to Klim and then we have Ginny. Okay, so this specific paragraph looks like it's it's referring us back to the constitution of soul, which is made as a, as a composition of the same and different. Um, and that, to me, that's that's geometrical, but it's also as as much geometrical as it is sort of the descriptive and and analogous. But but you you know because I think what Plato is struggling is he's trying to go back like to how sense perception is happening or how the understanding is happening. And the soul, in his mind, in order for the soul to be intellectual, it's not just and perceptive and being able to explain the bodily world it's not just sufficient for it to be made of the the same the substance of the same it has to kind of participate in both and because it, it combines both worlds both qualities that's how it can be 
uh, you know, smart, rational, and, and intellectual. I think that's his, like, maybe I'm confusing something, but to me, it seems like he, that's his rational way of explaining how the, like, the primary, where the primary, what are the conditions for the primary power of intelligence, meaning, like, power, not just no self, but to being able to explain the world of the matter, that the world of nothingness, of, of non-being, the, you know, pure non-existence, as uh, Timaeus mentions, like in, in the very, in the beginning of the dialogue, the realm of the forms and, and bodies and constant changes as not being, becoming, but not being. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's like on the nature of the soul. And that I, I agree with what Darren mentioned uh, earlier that, yes, it's, it's not just mechanical and, but my logic and again, it's just my uh, perception is that yeah, it's both mechanical and intellectual. So soul being at the center of things is sort of the primary key holder as far as the intelligence. Um, and also not just having the interpretive power, but also having the power to lay down the first metaphysical principles for the mechanical laws to operate. So in other words, to get to the realm of mechanical, and I think Plato there, he's actually very consistent if you start thinking about him, because he starts from these basic principles or abilities of the soul to perceive and rationalize, which is purely an intellectual effort in, in terms of Kantian terms, it's the pure metaphysics. And then by the way, going back to Kant, he is, uh, mentioning two primary intuitions even before forming of concepts and those are time and space it's interesting that he draws similarity uh, between space and geometry and then time for him where the, the perception of time comes from or the the first intuition of time is the arithmetics so in other words like if you start counting one two three those are the numbers are the measures of time whereas the the shape the geometrical uh, shapes are the measures of space and both space and time are nothing but he's not talking about the things in themselves the outside world those for the outside world he cannot say whether space and time exists he only says that space and time as two primary intuitions prior to forming concepts exist in the inner world of a human being so these are like the first intuitions that are the principles of his metaphysics. And then he then he goes not just into geometrical terms, but to the logical, purely logical conceptual framework that he lays down as the first generative principles for the phenomenal world, just the pure you know, inner world to exist. Uh, that's very, you know, if you think about it, he kind of unpacks the Plato theory the first stage where the world having the the mechanical properties what are the foundational uh the elements or the first the principal metaphysical principles that are the foundation for the natural science so i i do see strong connection there now of course each philosopher looks slightly differently at things but yeah i mean it's it's both mechanical but i i would say the pure metaphysical senses and concepts come in in a kind of in a, in a hierarchical order prior to mechanicals and then you have to almost like have nothing else to do but to slip into the the mechanical 
laws, which again, it could be a trap also in, in a way, because as, as I don't know, if you listen to Chomsky again, then he's like, well, and it's, it's kind of interesting because he's being almost uh, like a, a progressive, uh, anti-religious kind of thinker and anti-theologian, but he's he has nothing but to say to admit that Newton was himself perplexed that there's nothing mechanical about the <laughs> the laws of nature that, that he discovered. Uh, so, but I think mechanic explaining everything in terms of the mechanical relationships is it's probably uh wired into our consciousness you know you could you could probably cite like the theory of evolution where you know we're developing as a species having certain properties you know being able to i mean we deal with with objects you know we know that objects bounce you know and if they if they collide for example we kind of we can pick with our intelligence Mm -hmm. those properties that we perceive as mechanical and and on the surface they they look like they are Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that whether you put it to like the physical perce- perceptions being kind of hardwired into us. And, you know, I'm thinking back to in the Republic where Socrates says, you know, the first order of business for a philosopher is knowledge of geometry and number. And that really kind of speaks to this idea of this hardwiring. Like we're connected to this fabric somehow. But, you know, again, I think that back to that question that I asked, you know, what came first, intelligence? Like, do we believe? Timaeus that intelligence came first and the the physical which is you know maybe what you're talking about in terms of mechanical that that came after um in my view that's the only way that uh, in that order of of coming to be uh, in the creation of the universe that's the only order in which intelligence can have access to all of the limits of the physical and the mechanical things is if it came first if it came second how would it insert itself into this into this mechanism in a way that it has access to all of the knowledge of all of the limits, right? So again, this is sensory perception. Sensory perception is not understanding. Uh, understanding comes from the exercise of reason, which Timaeus says occurs in the middle of the universal sphere in the soul. But understanding is based on data that the soul gets from the physical senses. And that data is just simply of the physical objects, uh, but that's not data of everything. That's just data of the physical objects. So, so I think that that helps to put it in, um, in perspective. And, and this idea that the observer therefore is always different. It, it's the observer is in a different um, place, like in, in this realm of being that is different from the realm of becoming. So the observer is always distinct from the physically observed separation of observer and observed is critical. Uh, I think without that separation, we don't, we're not able to observe everything that is physically occurring and we miss things. So that to me would be the best way to create a universe is to keep that separation of observer and observed, which Timaeus has said at 28A is, you know, the observer is in the realm of being and the observed is in the realm of becoming. So, so uh, thanks for that. And we'll go to Ginny and then to Darren. I just have a very simple question. So if everything is made up of triangles, is that the sphere and circle is made up of triangles? Um, Yeah, I think the sphere and the circle can certainly be decomposed into triangles. You can break them down into triangles. But, you know, a perfect sphere, as in this diagram here, uh, you can see like there's these, the the, the square grid around the sphere. Right. 
but you can see how you could break those up into triangles, right? Right. The, but, I mean, I mean, yeah. the, the grid, the, the squares are okay. Two triangles, blah blah blah. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, even to the very center of each circle, uh, you know, the the, the the very center of that sphere, there's a triangle involved there. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, that's a very good question. Actually, it's an excellent question. I think Timaeus would say no. Uh, I think Timaeus would say that the triangles go down to everything except for the center, because at the center, there's nothing. There's nothingness. There's just this, this, this little bit of nothingness. Like the smaller the sphere is, the smaller the nothingness gets. But uh, at the center of the, the sphere of the universe, he says the universe is a sphere, the center, there is nothing solid. So um, now the triangles are the basis of the solid things, the, the physically solid things. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think time is, is kind of saying there's a little bit of, there's a hole in the middle of the universe, mm. a hole. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. It's an excellent question. Thank you. Very good question. We'll see what others think. Maybe my interpretation is, is off, but that, that's how I'm seeing time is, is saying it. So, all right. And we'll go to Darren. Um, well, he doesn't have, well, I, I had my other, I'll just quickly respond to what was just said and then get to my main comment. So spheres do come into the picture because he made the universe in the sphere and do spheres have something to do with like the motions of the stars and our, our souls too? I don't remember. I have to go back, but I think like there, there's definitely a lot of discussion of spheres, but it doesn't come in. Like, I think they might explain motion of the stars because like, that's like the motion of understanding and reason and what, or whatever, <laughs> but regarding the elements with which he's gonna you know try to create this um or Timaeus is gonna use to create a view of you know how things operate in the world it seems like that aspect of it <laughs> that he called actually in the reading today he calls it um the lumber that the uh craftsman is gonna use and another thing I'll just say to that is that although there aren't like spheres per se amongst this lumber that the um, craftsman uses there there are going to be tetrahedrons octahedrons isocahedrons and cubes <laughs> so like they're not spheres per se but once you get to the really micro part of it i mean i guess even like even contemporary physics we can't say that things are when you go down small enough the things aren't literally spheres either you know there are other things um but for plato in this or at least in this dialogue yeah the at the bottom there are things that come close to uh, pretty close to spheres, right? Like the like, what's a sorry? I lost that. What was the thing shape called? The icosahedron. Like that's Icosi pretty close. Icosahedron, yeah. That's pretty close to the sphere, right? I don't know. <laughs> Actually, the the dodecahedron has a volume that is closest to the volume of a sphere. Uh, oh right, yeah. There, sorry, there's yeah. There, there's also I think that also yeah. comes up in this dialogue, right? Yeah. The, the... Oh yeah, those are that's one of the five Platonic solids. We, we yeah. call them Platonic solids because Plato introduced them in this dialogue. Right. And I'll yeah. talk about the unique properties of those, you know, because <laughs> because they all of the vertices they are the only five solid shapes in the universe. Okay, all of whose vertices inscribe the surface of a sphere. So this sphere on this diagram here, the vertices of those five solids are the only ones that consistently touch the inside of that sphere, the circumference of that sphere. They inscribe the circumference, the only five solids, right? This is critical, I think, to understanding this dialogue and why he brings the solid, the platonic solids or the five regular solids into this. Yeah, there, there are things that come close to like sphere-like... <laughs> things um but maybe you have to like look um really close like 
get that really far in the, in this metaphysics to see them because they're like the really tiny constituents. And yeah, these are made apparently, you know, I, I don't remember if, what he says in the in this reading from you know week or two two weeks ago but or two sessions ago but yeah like these are made up of triangles right he i think he he's gonna say that so yeah there oh there we go sorry the, he, yeah, yeah to, i just I, brought up the yeah pictures so I thank you the pictures of the yeah the, the, the dodecahedron that looks pretty that's that's pretty close to spherical as far as the mechanical yeah. things go well they all inscribe all of the yeah. points of those <laughs> objects inscribe the circumference of a sphere those are the only five objects in the universe, all of whose vertices uh, touch the surface of a sphere. Yeah. Yeah. And I could see how, like, you know, if you have enough of the dodecahedron, you know, if they're tiny enough, then you might be able to build something more visible that's like sphere like. But anyway, that's a different um, issue. I, I want to get back to the thing I put my hand up for, which is um, I wanted to respond to what um, Clint was saying in uh, the relation with Kant. So this is not a meetup on Kant. I don't want to get bogged down in like too much comparative stuff. That's not fair to people who <laughs> aren't here for Kant or haven't read the Kant. But I, I just want to say like, I'll, I'll do, I'll try to do this very quickly, which is that, um, so this is, you know, this also comes back to James question, the question he's posed for us about um, whether intelligence came before or after this world that was created. Um, and there was some debate about that in previous sessions too. So for Kant, I don't think I'm actually like even really necessarily objecting or contradicting what Clem was saying. I guess I'm just adding a bit to it here. So for like Kant, he sees all our intellectual capacities as just the conditions for our ability to understand the world. And they're not they're not about the world per se. So like space and time and you know mathematics. Kant just wants to say that they're just aspects of our own consciousness, our own intellect. And they help us give structure to our experience so that we can make sense of it. But Kant's limit, like he doesn't want to go say be anything beyond that. He doesn't want to say that that is literally how the world is because there's no there's no leap he can make. He just wants to say that's, yeah, that's, you know, that helps us make sense of the world. It works. But he doesn't want to say that's literally how the world is because what can we say about the world apart from those very conditions of our ability to understand it? Like he, he thinks it's like, conceptually incoherent or somehow to like be able to say that that's literally how the world is because i don't know maybe he talks about other beings and other parts of the universe which might experience the world in different ways and he might experience time and space in different ways so but i i just want to say uh, to add to that so clem was like right about all that but i want to say that plato also is kind of an internalist too because he doesn't say everything is outside and everything we learn is just through these external you know sense perceptions for Plato, we do have like, this comes back to the idea of the soul. We do have a soul, which is intellectual, right? So it's not some weird, like spiritual ghostly thing. And we don't know really what it does. I remember in the previous week, I don't remember exactly what he said. So I have to go back. But Plato explicitly defined a soul as this intellectual thing with these mathematics and, you know, understands geometry <laughs> and um, numbers and proportions. So I I mean, I was really impressed, but at least in the Timaeus, he just comes right out and say, yeah, that's what the soul, at least that's one of the capacities of it. But I think what's important for Plato is that even in the in the section that we started this session with, um, so just around that section, he, he describes how the soul, um, I think this is just before this section that James read at the start of this meeting, he describes how the soul has sort of reactions to the world when it encounters something that's conforming to it or something, it, it, it like straightens out the form of the, sh the same and the soul straightens out or goes into curve or whatever so there, there's a way in which the soul sort of um reacts to external stimuli in this picture and then it conforms to it in a way because it already exists in us 
in a way. So in, in that way, it's sort of like Kant, like these intellectual abilities and these um, possibilities already exist in us. It's not like literally all we sort of imbibe from the outside, sort of in the very human picture um, where everything just comes from the outside. And so, I, okay, I just want to wrap this up. This brings us back squarely to Plato, luckily. This is actually very important for Plato. This is not like, oh, this is some interesting you know, side consequence of this view. Oh yeah, okay, so you know, things can form and uh, who cares? It's actually a hugely important ethical point, right? And it's part of like almost like a religious kind of point that we want to conform ourselves to the intellectual foundations of the like our world and our universe that's literally out there. And that's how we find that's almost like the the kind of ethical goal for us. Like we find our meaning that way. So this is um at the end of last week's reading. So at 69, right? So this was the great quote. And I think this just really just sums up this view of like the relation between inside and outside and the ethical importance of this issue, actually. She said there, so this was 69A. So the craftsman made use of these, uh, the relevant auxiliary causes. It was he himself who gave their fairy design to all that comes to be. And then this is the important part. That is why we must distinguish two forms of cause, the divine and the necessary. First, the divine for which we must search in all things if we are to gain a life of happiness to the extent our nature allows. And second, the necessary causes for which we must search for the sake of the divine. That is, you know, the goal mm -hmm. of our search, our, our goal of our knowledge. And then he says, uh, our reason is that without the necessary, those other objects about which we are serious cannot on their own be discerned and hence cannot be comprehended or partaken of in any other way. It's sort of suggesting like we have to know these mechanical causes, but in them, we should be searching for signs of the divine because that is going to be what gives our soul its meaning and a life of happiness. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a pretty significant, you know, it comes. It, so that's maybe the most like, even like important takeaway, like in terms of ethics from this. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'll just wrap up there. So it, it all has like importance tied to it. It's not just some, you know, weird discussion, theoretical discussion we're having. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that's great, and I'm I'm glad you raised that 69a quote because it really highlights um, in I won't use the word necessity. I'll say the importance of finding the divine cause first, uh, because I think that really points to unity. And if we look for unity first, that which ties everything together, that's almost like a dialectic where we're looking for the first principle. So you look for the first principle, and that's, you know, you get through all of those causes and effects and you find the first cause or as close as you can come to the first cause. None of us can put our finger on the exact first cause of everything, but you come as close to that. And then coming as close to that, then you can apprehend all of the, all of the necessities, which I think as two people in our previous session, two weeks ago, kind of, I like the way they redefine necessity as, you know, the, the, the physical, basically the, the physical limits those are the necessities. And so once you've found, once you've come as close as you can to the first cause, then you can properly assess all of the causes and effects that ensue in the physical objects, which are the necessary parts of the realm of becoming, which is the physical realm. So I, I think that's really helpful. And then I think you also talked a little bit about the uncertainty in the accounts that we give. And that's just, I, I wanted to recall what Taimea said earlier, actually at the beginning when he started to explain this, he says, I won't be able to make an exact account of this. I will give you the likely account. And that's again, highlighting that in the realm of becoming the physical realm, we're dealing with probabilities and not certainties. So the only certainty is in the realm of being, and that's the limitless, timeless realm. 
and the realm of becoming, there's no certainty possible. And we know from Heisenberg and Gödel, as we've spoken many times before, that you cannot have certain knowledge in the physical realm of becoming. So I think that was an important point to make. Um, we'll go to Clem, and then I'll do another reading after you uh, make some comments, Clem. Um, actually, uh, Darren, very, very good. Um, you know, looping back in, into the soul because that, that was exactly my point as well that I was trying to make. Well, I think you excellently put that. Uh, you know, that uh, it's for the sake of the soul, right? So you, you, we have to look into the physical properties, however we understand them, to to kind of understand what maybe there are higher principles than that. Um, and also, as I mentioned earlier, it looks like soul is composed. There, there's a reason why Plato uh, describes soul as being composed of two realms, these two polarities that give the, you know, the, the soul the ability to, perceived ability, right, to not just be, uh, you know, purely intellectual, like pure, pure metaphysical in, in Kantian terms, but also be able to, you know, to drill down into the maybe mechanical properties of things. Um, in the Toronto meetings that are dedicated to Kant, uh, uh, Toronto Philosophy Club's meetings, I actually went uh, as far as I, I actually expressed the my sense that Kant is a little bit depressing because he, ha he has to deal with these two realms where the outside entities are unexplainable. And so you have to put everything in your mind. And I even went as far as I said, well, maybe if you try to bridge the two, maybe you could start with these uh, intuitive capacities of the human mind which are, you know, the, in Kantian terms, those are the first very, um, like, original, very primary perceptions of space and time, again, prior to forming any concepts about them, which it beats me. I, I, I don't know how to, mm -hmm. to me, they're purely conceptual, but Kant is actually very insistent. He's saying those are impressions of, like, the, your, your, first impressions of human spirit of what the reality may be like whether it's outside or or internal mm -hmm. it's the, those in, intuitions of space and time but i kind of went even farther than that and i said well maybe those intuitions of space and time are in in their turn are the capacities or the properties of the outside world that kind of you know merges like flows into the human the the physical properties that flow into the human mind because it to me it's like well the perception has to happen somewhere and plato says well it's sort of mechanical any kind of perception uh but it's to me personally it's important to find that bridge between the outer and the inner without you know, constricting yourself, encapsulating yourself just in the in into the inner world. And as I was suggesting, this bridge that it's it's your physical realm that manifests itself in these first mental intuitions of, of space and time. And I don't know how successful, how how sound of an idea it is, but everybody seemed to agree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're like, okay, if that makes you happier, clearly yeah. <laughs> you're well, let, let's uh, let's think about that bridge actually I like that word that you used and it just made me think of those five platonic solids as maybe those are the bridges um so uh, i want to get to those shortly so just before we go to that i want to 
to uh, invite Katie to say a few words. I'm, I was wondering whether I could ask a question to make sure I understood this idea of becoming and probability. Sure. So are you saying that, for example, you know, an acorn has a probability to become a tree, but it's, there's no, it's not, there's no law that there's, it's not a given that it will become a, a tree. Is that what you're saying? That this idea of becoming like it could, that is the, the logical progression, but it doesn't. Yeah, I think that's, that's actually a, a good analogy. I think that, um, I mean, that's the way acorns are supposed to turn out in time, but they don't always turn out that way. And so in the physical realm that we exist, um, uh, Heisenberg had the uncertainty principle, which says that the more you know of an object's position, so maybe you could think of the acorn as the object, the less you know of its momentum. And you could think of momentum as its future in becoming the tree. And it says the more you know of an object's momentum, the less you know of its position. So the more you know of its outcome, the less you know of its beginning. So it's really, I think, yeah, that's an interesting analogy that we have all of these potentials in this realm of, in this physical realm, uh, but in terms of what the outcomes are going to be, we can never be certain of that because there's just so many variables and it's impossible. Mathematically, it's impossible to be certain of the outcomes. So I like the way of, uh, that you've used that analogy. Um, so we we can have different levels of knowledge and that's what Plato put set out in the Republic. You know, the, the divided line of knowledge has four different levels, belief, opinion, knowledge, and wisdom, you know, kind of proceeding in that order from the least certainty to, to the greatest possible certainty, but not absolute certainty. So, so yeah, I like that. Thank you. I hope that helps. Um, I just wanted to, uh, be, just before we go back to Darren, I just wanted to read the rest of this bit of 54 or 53 that I started with. I read part of that, uh, but I just wanted to read the rest of it with respect to the triangles because Plato gets very specific here. He says, that is how at the time the four kinds, uh, in other words, earth, fire, water, and air, were being shaken by the receiver. And this is the container that Timaeus talked about, which was itself agitating like a shaking machine, separating the kinds most unlike each other furthest apart and pushing those most like each other closest together in the same region. This, of course, explains how these different kinds come to occupy different regions of space, even before the universe was set in order and constituted from them at its coming to be. Indeed, it is a fact that before this took place, the four kinds all lacked proportion and measure. And at the time the ordering of the universe was undertaken, fire, water, earth, and air initially possessed certain traces of what they are now. They were indeed in a condition one would expect of thoroughly God-forsaken things to be in. So finding them in this natural condition, the first thing that God then did was to give them their distinctive shapes using forms and numbers. And so again, I think that's the reference to the platonic forms in this realm of being, the ideas um, and he goes on to say, here is a proposition we shall always affirm above all else. The God fashioned these four kinds to be as perfect and excellent as possible when they were not so before. It will now be my task to explain to you what structure each of them acquired and how each came to be. My account will be an unusual one, but since you are well-schooled in the fields of learning in terms of which I must of necessity proceed with my exposition, I'm sure you'll follow me. Uh, and that, you know, there's maybe that uncertainty idea again there. Um, and then I did read uh, this part about the triangles. Uh, depth uh, is of necessity comprehended within surface and any surface bound by straight lines is composed of triangles. So I won't reread that part again. Yeah, then he goes on to just explain the nature, the different natures of triangles and how the triangles seem to be 
really well suited to um, to the construction of the physical universe. He says, we should now say which are the most excellent four bodies that can come to be. They are quite unlike each other, though some of them are capable of breaking up and turning into others and vice versa. If our account is on the mark, we shall have the truth about how earth and fire and their proportionate intermediates, water and air, came to be. For we shall never concede to anyone that there are any visible bodies more excellent than these, each conforming to a single kind. So we must wholeheartedly proceed to fit together the four kinds of bodies surpassing of surpassing excellence and to declare that we have come to grasp their natures well enough. So of the two triangles, uh, both of which contain any triangle, he says, can be broken into two triangles that contain right angles, and this is true. The isosceles has but one nature, while the scalene has infinitely many. So an isosceles triangle is a triangle that has at least two equal sides, and the scalene has no equal sides. So there's differences in triangles. So we're getting this idea of same and different here. Uh, he says, now we have to select the most excellent one from among the infinitely many, infinitely many, uh, if we are to get a proper start. So if anyone can say that he has picked out another one that is more excellent for the construction of these bodies, his victory will be that of a friend, not an enemy. And then he goes on to say, of the many uh, scaling right-angled triangles, then we posit as the most excellent, surpassing the others, that one from a pair of which the equilateral triangle is constructed as a third figure. Why this is so is too long a story to tell now. But if anyone puts this claim to the test and discovers this isn't so, his be the prize with our congratulations. Um, so that's one of those cases where Timaeus just kind of punts a very um, complicated issue to another time. So I wanted to read that just to give you some example of the depth of uh, his discussion of triangles. Um, and then I need to, we need to, we will, and unfortunately we have 37 minutes left in this recording. Uh, and I do want to get to the Platonic solids today because we did not get to them last time. So uh, I just ask uh, commentators to just leave enough time for that so so that we get to this. So I'll put this on the screen uh, while we talk and uh, we'll take Darren. Okay, I guess I <laughs> I, I did want to, I, I was going to come back to that um, question of the, um, the relation of the inner and the outer, which I think is quite interesting. And um, so I, and I actually think it's, it's actually, maybe um maybe frames the whole dialogue because i was reminded of our very first discussion on this dialogue so everyone remember the first discussion <laughs> and um and this is before we got into Timaeus's like long speech here so that was critias and and they were sort of just having a conversation and how there were all these like weird coincidences so we discussed that in the first week in all kinds of ways and um it was kind of eerie almost but that's precisely on this issue of how like how like Socrates managed to come up with a republic described the previous day in the previous dialogue that somehow resembled this really ancient story of really ancient Athens that Critias heard from somewhere else. And even they even seem to share some of the same na and so same names and so on and so forth. Like there, there's all these weird coincidences. But that's precisely because like what comes from Socrates is like reason when he developed the Republic resembled like the very first sort of uh, great cities that were created by Athena. But the reason they coincide is because they all have this inner source. So what manifests in uh, the outer world has this deep inner logic. So it's like this. It, so in fact, this like issue, it like frames this entire dialogue and, and, and part of what, what is at work now in, in the current reading is just, um, trying to describe this underlying logic. So I think it's actually really, <laughs> in that frame, it's quite uh, important. Yeah. 
Um, and also, so I just want to like, okay, I, I know you want to go on. I'll just quickly say a few things about this relationship, which I think um, maybe brings home its importance. So part of the implication of this view is that for Plato, or maybe it's just Timaeus, I don't know, um, here, is that if we want to find out about our, like the deepest part of ourselves, our own souls, and to find like meaning in life, it's not to keep looking inside, which is sort of like what maybe Klim's misgiving about Kant was. It's actually to look outside. Like Plato was saying, we'll find our deepest meaning and satisfaction, our souls will, by doing like science, basically. By, um, by uh, at very, at, in earlier readings, like he actually said this explicitly, by finding out about the motion of the stars, by observing the stars and learning about the stars, we actually put order to our own souls and we find satisfaction and meaning in life that way. And also, like, uh, he also describes things like music. He was like, he criticized the view of music that's just all about pleasure. He, for him, like, this was in the previous reading um, of, of this dialogue, previous uh, meeting. He says music actually, it's not just about pleasure. It has something to do with our reason. So, and I was saying, I remember I had this debate with, um, I forget, Steve, right? He was saying how, like, like all this stuff is, like, subjective or whatever. But I, I and I, I remember I was saying how, well, insofar as the external world, you know, does do this for us i think that's not the only kind of validity that's available it's not logical validity or scientific validity but it is a kind of subjective validity for this view um it's not the only thing we should rely on but i think yeah this idea that to find happiness and meaning is actually to stop being self-absorbed and looking in, inside it's actually just to go out into the world and discover things about the world and i think that's a pretty cool view and so i just so the final thing i wanted to say is that um Okay, well, maybe two more things as quickly. Um, so the question, like, why we should care about the divine? It's so under Plato's view, a lot of people will be like, even if there is a divine, like, why should I care about it? Right? Like, I'm just like this material being down here, and there's this God. Like, like, why should I care about God then, or or the divine? Like, we can call it that. But for Plato, the importance is because the divine is also in us. So again, a conformity between inner and outer. Um, and okay, so this is my last point, which is also to bring it back to the Republic, which is actually supposedly what this dialogue was about, was putting the Republic in motion. <laughs> and so why are we talking about all this? So I think Socrates like wanted, was unsatisfied with the Republic, he says in this dialogue, that he was unsatisfied with what he created because he doesn't actually know if it works, right? Like we have to put it in motion first. Like he just described this static theory, but what does it look like in, like once we set things into motion? So we have to understand causes. So this is what a lot of this dialogue is about. But I, I just want to point out though, that the meaning of work, the important meaning of work here is not like mechanical working. So if we only understand the world mechanically, like you can say, okay, yeah, let's see if it works and it, it runs properly. But no, like the kind of working is whether it is good. That's whether once we put it into motion, not whether it runs like a clock and it can work that way. The question is, once we put it in motion, whether it is good and that it conforms with, you know, the the um, the intellectual part of the universe, not just necessity part. I know I, I think that's important. And also, if you recall back in the Republic, like a lot of the initial arguments rested on the analogy of the Republic itself as a soul, like the society itself has, as being a soul. Like he draws this analogy with the soul of a person, like what is justice and justice is, um, um, anyway, I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to make a mistake how that works out, but there is an, there is basically is an analogy of a collective with a kind of soul and justice as, as 
um and in, in his um yeah. um argument for what justice is there is an analogy with the soul yeah so i think it all ties in back with um yeah this re again this question of what the relation between inner and elder and how how important that question actually is mm -hmm. to getting that right and the order the order of that right <laughs> Yeah, and, and yeah, you pointed to actually a number of really important things, important themes, I think, that I want to just, I want to pick up on here, and then I want to read this bit about the solids, because I think what you said actually just ties quite well to the solids, when you talked about um, this idea of harmony and justice, uh, I think there is a harmony of these shapes, these five platonic solids, there is this harmony, it's spherical harmony, and Timaeus having said that the universe is a sphere, the way you create harmony within that sphere is with these five solids, because the edges of these five solids are the only, they are all equal, right? So uh, you have these five solids, and, and these five solids, all, by the way, all fit together. And, and I know the geometry of this very well. The, the five solids all fit together. And because the sides of each of those solids are equal, that could create quite a lot of harmony in that sphere, like maybe perfect harmony in that sphere, right? Uh, and those are the only five solids in the universe that can do that. They, they as I said, their vertices uh, all touch, uh, all inscribe the circumference of that sphere. Uh, so that's critical. So you, you talked about harmony and putting order in our souls and all of this, which reminds me of something that Timaeus said earlier. And, and this relates to my question about what came first in the universe. Timaeus acknowledged that when a body, when a person is born, that person does not yet have intelligence. Although intelligence, he says, was the first thing that was created in the, in the universe, when a person is born, they're not born with that intelligence. They, they have to first get their souls in order. And he talks about the rotations, the orbits of the souls, putting those orbits in, in order so that intelligence then comes to that being. But, but because all knowledge is recollection, that intelligence is inherent. It just needs to be triggered i guess by that you know putting in by that harmonizing of the of the orbits that he talks about so i think that's a very important point that that relates very much to what you said and then you used i think near the beginning of what you said the word deep inner logic and this i think is exactly what the five platonic solids can do is deliver this deep inner logic of the sphere um so i want to talk about that and then you mentioned atlantis and that's why we're going to do the dialogue that Critias, which is a short dialogue next, because it'll take us back to that theme of Atlantis, which was brought up at the beginning of the Timaeus. Um, so that's yeah, a number of things you said that really tie things together well. So I wanted to read this bit from 54E to 55D, and this is on the five regular solids, which we now call platonic solids because Plato wrote the, about them in this dialogue 2,400 years ago. So he says, leading the way, in other words, the first solid, will be the primary form, the tetrahedron, the tiniest structure whose elementary triangle is the one whose hypotenuse is twice the length of its shorter side, and note this ratio, two, two to one. Now, when a pair of such triangles are juxtaposed along the diagonal, and this is done three times, and their diagonals and short sides converge upon a single point as center, the result is a single equilateral triangle composed of six such triangles. When four of these equilateral triangles are combined, a single solid angle is produced at the junction of three plane angles. This, as it turns out, is the angle which comes right after the most obtuse, and obtuse means greater than 90 degrees, of the plane angles. And he says most here, which could relate to Plato's greatest, you know, like the greater and the lesser. So the most would be the greater. Um, and he goes on. 
And once four such solid angles have been completed, we get the primary solid form, which is one that divides the entire circumference into equal and similar parts. Like circumference, right? So he's talking about the sphere here. Divides the entire circumference into equal and similar parts. Okay, so there's the same, you know, that key form of the same. Uh, and then he goes on. The second solid form, which is the octahedron, is constructed out of the same triangles, which, however, are now arranged in eight equilateral triangles and produce a single solid angle. And then the translator notes that this, this is the 180-degree conjunction of three 60-degree plane angles um, out of the four plane angles. And when six such solid angles have been produced, the second body has reached this completion. Now, the third body, which is the icosahedron, is made up of a combination of 120 of the elementary triangles and of 12 solid angles, each enclosed by five plane equilateral triangles. This body turns out to have 20 equilateral triangular faces. And let us take our leave of this one of the elementary triangles, the one that has begotten the above three kinds of bodies, and turn to the other one, the isosceles triangle, which has begotten the fourth, which is the cube. Arranged in sets of four, whose right angles come together at the center, the isosceles triangle produced a single equilateral quadrangle, i.e. a square, and when six of these quadrangles were combined together, they produced eight solid angles, each of which was constituted by three plane right angles. The shape of the resulting body so constructed is a cube, and it has six quadrangular equilateral faces. One other construction, the fifth, the dodecahedron, still remained. And this one the god used for the whole universe, embroidering finger figures on it. And he goes on to conclude, anyone following this whole line of reasoning might very well be puzzled about whether we should say that there are infinitely many worlds or a finite number of them. If so, he would have to conclude that to answer infinitely many is to take the view of one who is really unfinished in things he ought to be finished in. He would do better to stop with the question whether we should say that there's really just one world or five and be puzzled about that answer, while our probable account answer declares there to be but one world. A god, through someone else, taking other things into consideration, will come to a different opinion. We must set him aside, however. So maybe just if there's some reaction to this, there's a lot of details in here, and, and maybe people think this is dry and boring, um, but there's maybe a reason that Plato has put this in here, right? And in relation to the spherical universe. So what do we make of these five solids, and why has why Plato gone to such lengths to reveal this knowledge to the world 2,400 years ago? Any thoughts on that? And it all relates to triangles. Klim. Um, so my only interpretation of that would be by the, the phenomena, phenomenological world in, in Kant's theory, or something close to that, as basically as the images of the mind, like the basic shapes by which the reality can be explained. So in other words, it's the intellectual net that you can throw on the outside world to measure it, to cut it in pieces to um, start explaining relationships and, and so on. So it's a, so to me, it's more of a nature, like the, the embedded or the, the hardwired portion in our consciousness that 
helps us explain the the outer reality or the relationship uh, between things uh i'm not denying the like the validity of shapes and then there's logic between them and that these may be viewed as primary shapes and you could construct more complex shapes by using more simple shapes uh that's all valid it's also an excellent exercise in, in the knowledge of geometry by plato and his followers in which i'm sure they were very happy to boast at that time it's their you know technical and you know know-how during those times and it's always good i wish we all knew <laughs> geometry as they back then because i think it's um it's something of a such a such a, a primordial order that it just enriches your your consciousness and your soul so much. Um, but I would say this is a a property of the human consciousness more so than, in my view, than the the actual nature of the physical reality. Of we we cannot know for sure. No one can know for sure. But it just seems so. One one objection that I would have to using geometrical bodies not just geometrical shapes abstract shapes but actual bodies as the primary building blocks would be that no matter how they interact uh it almost you have to logically explain that by pure mechanics like in the sensible world where you know we can we if we bounce an object against the wall the wall will not let the object go through unless you know the sufficient force is being exercised and and, and so on so there's you know, it's it helps understand the boundaries, but one objection that I would have is the reality, the physical reality, if you build it using just the physical primary shapes, will always be mechanical. There's no way to, to jump over that hurdle for me. And there's always going to be a chance of some kind of empty space between those objects no matter how tightly you know you want to fit one to another so there's no fluidity there's no continuity it's always a broken um like a, a broken um world the, the picture of reality that's that's cut into pieces and to me it's it just it, intuitively it's not something that that i would bet on you know i would i would rather view uh, reality as maybe like in the modern science terms as some kind of fields, you know, rather than some particles with space between them, some relationships almost of a metaphysical uh, or mathematical order where we're, you know, we're talking about the relationships between objects that are only perceived to be tangible, but in, in reality, it's, it's very hard to prove that anything is, is of a tangible order. So to me, it's all these boundaries that are reflected in these shapes are pure metaphysical boundaries, not mm -hmm. the um, not the physical boundaries. So in, if, in light of that interpretation, then yes, I think it's a good approach by Plato to start approaching mathematically the, the underlying nature of our reality by basically throwing the mathematical, the whole of mathematical apparatus on the starting with what they knew at the time which was you know basic euclidean geometry which is i mean the right way to go but um our mathematical field has advanced since then you know and there's no no reason not to imply you know and to to utilize you know um our modern 
mathematics and all, all mm -hmm. you know various theories that, that we have. I'm not a mathematician, mm -hmm. but you know I kind of have this sense, an intuitive sense that you can you can make an argument for our our reality being sort of a, like of a, a virtual uh, order, sort of like a you know like a matrix or not not literally as a matrix, but more of a uh, maybe there's more virtuality to it than our earlier scientists used to think in terms of just the mechanical properties. Mm -hmm. uh, really, it's something more of an intellectual order. Pure, as, as in Kant's terms, would be pure pure metaphysical order with the laws of logics probably even you know, standing a little higher than the laws of the mathematics. Because you've got, you got to start with some primary, very primary laws of how our, our consciousness operates which is logical and so there are laws of formal logic for example and then you can develop mathematics out of it and then who knows what, what else maybe uh prior to or what what is the nature of the the logical um the, the, that whole wired built-in framework in, in our consciousness but mm -hmm. to me it's it's almost if you look at the the universe, the, the inner and the outer, it almost looks like there's one whole reality that's being fragmented by some kind of principle. So some kind of laws that are define the boundaries and the geometrical shapes are, you know, I think it's a good way to illustrate the general concept. Now, how it's really happening, you know, it's... Uh, nobody knows we know nobody knows yeah it's yeah. maybe we'll maybe we'll know more at some yeah. point i still yeah. think there is we can advance in in that area yeah. i think what the modern science is doing currently there may be approaching just intellectually that that, that whole thing mm -hmm. so i'm mm -hmm. i'm you know i'm, I'm still positive about that mm -hmm. i'm optimistic mm -hmm. um so you said a couple of things there that I wanted to take up. And one of them was basic Euclidean geometry and Euclid got the five solids from Plato. So Euclid was not the basis of that. Plato was. And even though it's basic in the sense that it was known, well, Euclid was about a hundred years after Plato. So even though it was, you know, basic 2,300 years ago, it doesn't mean that it's uh, not foundational now, even though we've added a lot more to the language of, mathematics and geometry than they had in their language then. But I think there's some uh, perhaps hidden language in these five platonic solids. And I think one of them is in their ability to provide us with measurements of spherical, uh, both spherical volume and spherical area. And so I just go back up to the picture here of the sphere. And the interesting, the, the problem in measuring, and, and you know, you said at the beginning, Clem, that measuring is the technique that we use to gauge things in our perception. Uh, and and I think you said also that triangles were the basic, were the basis of measurement. So you'll see triangles in all of those five platonic solids. That's very clear. Plato's made that clear. The problem in measuring the sphere, as we know now from modern mathematics, uh, is that that pi, right? Pi is both transcendental, which means that it's not algebraic, and it's irrational, which means that it's a continuing fraction. So the fact that the spherical uh, surface area is four pi r squared and the volume is four thirds pi r cubed means that we have a measurement problem. And I think maybe what Plato is saying here is that maybe part of uh, the, the thing that we might consider in our measurement problem to get around the uncertainty that Ginny brought up is the 
maybe these five platonic solids are a clue to that, right? Because their vertices all touch that sphere. So maybe in the combination of all of the vertices of those five platonic solids, maybe there's some information there. And maybe there's some information there that will inform our perceptions as we're measuring triangles in trying to deconstruct this external reality that's that's around us to find that first principle to get us to get us back to the you know the building blocks of everything that surrounds us. Um, and you you mentioned space, and I just wanted to mention that again. And, and we did talk about that last time. Space being, as, as Tamias has said, the fixed basis on which uh, all of the shapes can rest without itself affecting the shapes. So it's like this neutral basis. Uh, and so space, Timaeus has said, is the basis of depth, right? So you can have triangles in two dimensions, but then if you want to get those into three dimensions, you have to put space in them, right? So the tetrahedron, for example, is a four triangles with space in between them. So uh, that's how you get from two dimensions to three dimensions with depth by adding space. So I, I wanted to raise those points. But thank you. And, and you raised a number of important things in there that really led to those points. So I appreciate that. And we'll go to Darren. Just uh, quickly responding to Slim's concern about how like this metaphysics, you seem concerned about the boundaries and <laughs> how it's um like too discrete and there's like no continuity or something. I, I wonder if the addition of the receptacle, which Plato also talks about, but then just sort of left left behind would sort of help that problem because this is this all takes place in the receptacle, which sounds like it's something that's continuous. So that's another sort of aspect of the metaphysics, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that section just sounded like he was describing something like space to me, but yeah, I don't know. That might help with that issue though. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah. And I think that, uh, yeah, we do have this space with, so if the universe is spherical, we do have space inside that sphere. But as I said, that measuring that space, because there is no perfect sphere in physical existence is difficult. So, so yeah, I think, I think maybe this is some clue as to what we can use to measure. Uh, we'll go to Clem and then we have about 10 minutes left. So I need about five or six minutes to, I, I really want to read this part at the end here, because there's a bunch of knowledge that Timaeus displays of physical laws but it's put in languages, language that was used at the time, not language that we use now. But I mentioned some of these in our last meeting in response to Roger's question then. So I wanted to just go through this again, because this kind of wraps up the section that we're doing today. So, Clem. Uh, yes, just two uh, quick points. Um, I like, James, I like your idea on, you know, that there is maybe some hidden dimension that can be unpacked from the basic geometrical figures. I think... You know, yes, it probably is a you know a valid statement. It, it just in general, regardless of the you know which geometric, uh, geometrical figures we will start from, you know whether it's just the plane or or the line or or the Euclidean point uh, or you know a triangle or, or any something more complex, because uh, you, you have to have a starting point. Uh, and and yes, I, I wasn't. I admit I wasn't aware of the time frame of when the, the Euclid actually summarized all that the geometrical knowledge that existed at that time compared to when Plato wrote Timaeus. Um, but that's a, a valid point. I guess it's just that he is being kind of Euclidean in, in a way, right? Because he is talking about uh, triangles. Um, now, as far as the space, yeah, first of all, I think it's, it's actually a good point 
on the like the third dimension that the depth right so you know going from plane to more of a spatial three-dimensional awareness and maybe that's what um Kant meant it's unclear without you know having kind of you know going into that but maybe that was his perception that it's also there's depth to the space rather than maybe there's that depth in which geometry can you know can be constructed when I was talking about the um the space um I, I was really in trying to emphasize that point that there are two ways you can look at you know geometrical figures being the basis specifically triangles and the relationships of the sides of the triangles and the different triangles to to other triangles um there are two ways you can look at that one is pure intellectual and, and metaphysical as the building blocks of the, the the virtual type of reality where there is no mechanics or you can look at that as a mechanical universe in which sense that the space between those bodily objects becomes a problem to me from the point of view of continuity that was my objection to pure mechanical view on the universe and I'm, I tend to think that the universe is is really like one field of consciousness that is by metaphysical principles including the geometry is subdivided into the the reality the the you know more more you know it, it goes from the um the sameness right to nothing to becoming so there's this continued the whole continuum from the higher realm to the lower realm without breaking the the continuity and that's where these abstract metaphysical concepts they come right into place i mean like i mentioned before you can build a virtual reality you know just you know it field serving as a good analogy there again i'm not trying to interpret it literally just as analogy you can build any building blocks you want in in your software as, as a programmer for example different software languages different systems we're into the quantum computing <laughs> you know pretty soon so it's um you can build universe virtual universes by really metaphysical by applying metaphysical principles and so your virtual universe can exist as pure expression of pure metaphysical principles with no mechanics you don't need mechanics bodily mechanics in there i don't know maybe it's just me i'm stressing this mechanics and maybe it's just the way i perceive it as something tangible and maybe that's not it philosophically maybe that's not an issue at all but it's just me i'm, I'm trying i guess personally to get over that hurdle okay well let's see how far we can get so we have i would ask if, if folks could stay on for another five minutes or so or or 10 minutes, if we can run a little bit late on this one, just because I want to read this. And um, you mentioned, Clem, the quantum computer. So that's a very interesting example of something that is fundamentally geometric, fundamentally. So the quantum is, and I've said this before, is the smallest packet of energy that can either be a cause or an effect. So it's the very basic element of, of cause and effect at least in the physical universe as the quantum. So here we are trying to compute with these very basic building blocks of the physical universe. Uh, so it's a very interesting thing. And I've followed the quantum computing a lot and it is intensely geometric. So I would say quantum programmers would be, would do well to understand a little bit of Plato's work here, I think. Um, 
and then you know getting back to this idea of uh, of sensory perception which is you know kind of the purpose of this meeting you know we started by saying that to enclose a physical area you need at least three lines you can't enclose an area with two lines so sensory perception is going to require three points like literally to use the word triangulate space and time um so with that in mind, and having gone through what we have this meeting, and, and we've covered a lot of ground here, so this is this is great, and this is really trying to bring all of Timaeus together, uh, without getting into that last part, which is about the building of the body. Because once we understand the geometry, then I think the building of the body speaks for itself in, in terms of its logic. But what we're trying to understand here is spherical logic. Um, so, and I wanted to read this. I don't know how much I'll get of this. Sixty-two C to sixty-four C. Uh, and I just found this is really reflects a lot of what we know now as physical laws. So he starts off by talking about our perception of heavy and light. So this is greater and lesser again, like the idea that Plato keeps putting in all of his dialogues. Heavy and light can be most clearly explained if we examine them in conjunction with what we call above and below. It is entirely wrong to hold that there are by nature two separate regions divorced from and entirely opposite one another, the one region below toward which anything that has a physical mass tends to move, like gravity, right? and the other the region above, towards which everything makes its way only under force. For given that the whole heaven is spherical, all the points that are situated as extremes at an equal distance from the center must by their nature be extremes of just the same sort. And we must take it that the center, being equidistant from the extremes, is situated at the point that is opposite to all extremes. And I'll just break there because, you know, again, he's, he's said that the soul is at the center. So here he's saying that the soul is opposite to all of the extremes. And in the Phaedo and elsewhere, Socrates has said that everything comes to be an opposite. So the soul is taking its measure from the middle and it's measuring the opposites. Okay, so I, I wanted to point that out in this section. I think it, it's critically important. He goes on, and now if this is the universe's natural constitution, which of the points just mentioned could you posit as above or below without justly giving the appearance of using totally inappropriate language? There is no justification for describing the universe's central region as a natural above or a natural below, but just as at the center. And the region at the circumference is, to be sure, not the center, but neither is one of its parts so distinguished from any other that it is related to at the center in a specific way more so than any of the other parts opposite to it. What contrary terms could you apply to something that is, by its nature, all alike in every direction? So he's talking about the radius of the sphere here. How could you think to use such terms appropriately? If, further, there is something solid and evenly balanced at the center of the universe, it could not move to any of the extreme points because these are all alike in all directions, right? So that's what I said earlier is that he's making that geometric point there, I think, that if there was something at the center of the sphere that was solid, it would prevent movement in the rest of the sphere. And then he goes on, but if you could travel around it in a circle, you would repeatedly take a position at your own antipodes and call the very same part of it now the part above, and then the part below. For the whole universe, as we have just said, is spherical, and to say that some region of it is above and another is below makes no sense. The origin of these terms and the subjects to which they really apply, which explain how we have become accustomed to using them in dividing the world as a whole in this way, we must resolve by adopting the following supposition. Imagine a man stepping onto that region of the universe that is the particular province of fire, where the greatest mass of fire is gathered together and towards which other fire moves. Imagine further that he has the power to remove some parts of the fire and place them on scales. When he raises the beam and drags the fire into the alien air, applying force to it, 
Clearly, the lesser quantity of fire somehow gives way to his force and more easily than the greater. This talks, I think, a little bit about thermodynamics in here. For when two things are raised by one and the same exertion, the lesser quantity will invariably yield more readily and the greater, which offers more resistance, less readily to the force applied. And we now know that's part of the laws of motion. And so the large quantity will be described as heavy and moving downward, and the small one as light and moving upward. Now, this is the very thing we must detect ourselves doing in our own region. When we stand on the earth and weigh out one earth-like thing against the other, and sometimes some earth itself, we drag these things by force, contrary to their natural tendency, into the alien air. While both of them tend to cling to what is akin to them, nevertheless, the smaller one will yield sooner and more readily than the larger one to the force we apply that introduces it into the alien stuff. Now, this is what we call light, and the region into which we force it to go, uh, we call above. Their opposites we call heavy and below. Now, the things necessarily differ relatively to one another because the various masses of the elemental kinds of body occupy opposite regions. What in one region is light, heavy, below, or above will all be found to become or to be directly opposite to or at an angle to or in any and every different direction from what is light, heavy, below, or above in the opposite region. I think I'll stop reading that there and just point out, you know, I think that he's there talking again about our sensory perception and how we measure things and how we measure things relative to each other. And so he started with the heavy and light and then he went into above and below. And we have to recall at the beginning of the dialogue when Timaeus described the placement of the soul at the middle of the sphere, he said that there were seven motions the soul was given one motion, which was to rotate it around itself in the middle of the sphere. The other six motions, he said, the God took away and put into the physical uh, dimensions of the universe into the realm of becoming. So here he's talking about these motions and how we perceive these motions. And so I think there's, I don't know, I'm seeing some geometric logic in this. And we only have, unfortunately, just a few minutes left. But uh, I don't know if there's any comments on on this part in in our sensory perception, given what we've said about the spherical universe, about triangles, about differences in the same, about the container, about space. I, maybe we can come back to this then when we take up the Critias, and I think we'll find echoes of the Timaeus and the Critias, and maybe the Critias will help us to understand a little bit more about why the legend of Atlantis was brought up at the beginning of the Timaeus. So yeah, I think we can keep this in mind. I would like folks to think about this, though, in terms of, you know, does this represent some basis for our perception? And understanding this basis for our perception is essentially geometric, then how do we make reason out of this geometry? And is that why Socrates said in the Republic that knowledge of geometry and number is essential to, a, to any philosopher? Um, so Klim, just briefly. Yes, very briefly, to comment on strictly what my perception of this is, yeah, you can probably summarize this in a, in a maximum, which would be mechanics is virtual. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the best that I can say. I mean, that's how I would reconcile the tangibility of objects and thinking about the world that's being made of the gross matter, right? Is that it's all... It's all virtual and there's nothing wrong with that, right? You just have to basically get rid of this idea as being, a, a, you know, idea, you know, that defines the gross matter as, 
as something other than just the constitution of, of some metaphysical principles, which is, it's totally fine. I don't know if that's what necessarily Plato meant. It looks like he certainly can be interpreted that way. And probably our, you know, our, our modern science is probably struggling with, with this particular question right now. And yeah, again, that word virtual there, and it makes me think of, uh, you know, what I referred to as Socrates saying that everything comes to be in opposites. And so maybe what we are understanding is, or we're measuring the opposites. And then once we know what the opposites are, we know all of the the matter or the content in between the opposites. Uh, but the opposites themselves, if the opposites are lying in a sphere, they would be virtual because uh, there is no such thing as a perfect sphere, except for the universe itself, which is what Timaeus is saying. Clem. Yes, uh, actually, uh, what you just said leads me back to the uh, the Hindu concept in, in Sankhya, which in the, the two poles that I mentioned mm -hmm. in the prior uh, meeting, uh, the uh, Purusha, which is can be probably identified with the sameness, roughly. These are, again, these are not to be mixed. These are two different systems, the Platonic and the Hinduist. Uh, but there, there's some similarity to them. Uh, so the Purusha would be the sameness, the, the, let's say the realm of the spirit, roughly, in the scientific terms. And the Prakriti would be uh, sort of like the nature portion and also could be identified within the, the realm of the non-existent and ever changing things, ever becoming but never being. Potentially could be, you can make that parallel. Both, to what you just said, both realms or both poles are the principles of existence, but none do exist in our sense. So they're both outside of the realm of uh, exist. Actually, they're both outside of the realm of the being. Plato, I think he's using being as a principle. Sankhya and Advaita would probably go just a little bit beyond that, where they would put anything that generates the world of becoming or the world of manifestation as outside of uh, being. So that, you know, who knows, with Purusha maybe even a higher principle in, in their mm -hmm. in their point of view than uh, the same is. But mm -hmm. what's interesting is that they're both poles are outside of this whole realm of manifestation. They don't exist in the Hindu metaphysics mm -hmm. in, in, in the sense that, that we think about existence. Mm -hmm. That really made me think actually, and I remember your point from two weeks ago about the two poles and uh, I like the way you, you equated them to being and becoming in Plato's terminology. And I think maybe this is a good way to conclude on the Timaeus with this meeting is that maybe the pole of being is then in the middle of the sphere, the universal sphere, that's the pole of being. And the pole of becoming is on the outside of the sphere. And it's always, always moving, always rotating, always circling. So maybe that's how we would think about that. And I'm just picturing myself now in the middle of the sphere and this kind of just static being of my sense of reason inside the sphere and then rotating around on the surface of the sphere, which is being touched by the platonic solids, the vertices of the platonic solids. That's the other pole and that's the pole of becoming. And then I'm measuring the radius between me in the middle and that becoming on the surface of the sphere. And maybe that's really how we kind of that's how our consciousness works which is i think far greater than any 
computer consciousness that we've ever imagined so far. So uh, I think that's really uh, such a powerful view of the soul that Plato provides in this. I, I just, I feel, as I've said before, so much more empowered after reading this and understanding this. Like this was the first dialogue that we did at the beginning of Plato's pod in season one. We're now in four se season four. And so we, that's why we've revisited this because I think we've learned so much more in the intervening years that I think this really gives me a new sense of uh, really the power of this universe if it was created, as Timaeus says, with intelligence as its first component, and then everything else comes to be after that. So that's what I believe after having read, read this, and I don't know what others think, but uh, let's let's carry on this discussion into the Critias uh, in our next meeting in two weeks. And it's been so fabulous that these four sessions on the Timaeus have been so great. So I want to thank everybody for being here today and all of the others who have participated in the earlier sessions as well. And I look forward to meeting in two weeks and we'll uh, turn the recording off now, but I would invite anybody who wants to stay on for you know, maybe 20 minutes or so, just for a casual unrecorded discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So thanks again. And see you.